This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Time for us to check in and find out what is going on with the federal government today to get our update from Ottawa. We are joined now by David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. So how quickly are they going to be recalling members of parliament to get this new program passed? Uh, well, I guess as quickly as possible. I'm certain we're going to hear details about this. Uh, and I think the, the, you know, the people who are most concerned about this are employers. Uh, this is what we're, we're trying to get the Canada emergency wage subsidy out the door. Yesterday we learned it could take three to six weeks, and that's without any political interference. That's with the government working as fast as possible to get this program set up. So remember, this is the 75% wage subsidy paid to employers, and then employers are to keep employees on the payroll uh, with the wages being subsidized essentially by the federal government. Um, as I said, it could be three to six weeks before that gets set up. This particular program available to all employers, big or small, uh, oil and gas sector, retail, accountancy, you name it, not available to uh, the, the public sector employees if you work for hospitals or right. school boards, but um, all employers... And you have to go get this through the Canada Revenue Agency. We learned about that as well. So that's through the CRA. You probably already have a relationship with the CRA if you're a business. You're set up for direct deposit banking. And you have to show the CRA that your sales this year are down 30% versus last year. I should say sales in March are down 30% versus last March, or sales in April 30% right. down versus last month. Not every business can do that. You think of startups, uh, some seasonal businesses. And the finance minister said, okay, we'll maybe make some adjustments, but those details, TBD. The first thing, most important thing, businesses, make sure you're all set up with the CRA. That's where the portal will be in a, in a, in a few days for people, business owners, to start applying. Right. And I know there's lots of complaints, though, about how long this is taking for businesses, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. I mean, it's pretty hard to make government move fast. It is. Uh, in the meantime, the government is saying, listen, they, the government's ready to backstop a $40,000 interest-free loan. So the government will guarantee a loan to businesses. This is businesses only. Businesses can get those through their financial institution. And talking to banks yesterday, they are trying to get this program up literally as fast as possible, but that may not be till next week. So if you can, you know, this is this, presumably this is the way it works, is businesses can get some money from their bank on loan next week, then starting uh, three to six weeks to get some wage subsidies. In the meantime, certainly some employees are laid off, yeah. uh, have been laid off already, and employees are looking for either EI or the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. That's, that's money paid directly to Canadians. The big one there, EI, we know sort of how that works, although there's a huge backlog, a million and a half Canadians have applied Oof. for EI. The CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, that's worth 2000 bucks a month for the next four months, that portal will be up for April the 6th. So that is kind of just around the corner, and you might see that money uh, a lot quicker. But that's being paid to directly to Canadians, including self-employed Canadians, mm-hmm. I might add, if you're, if you're out of work. Uh, that's different from the wage subsidy. But the government, basically, the government wants this wage subsidy in so that we don't have people on EI. They're still getting a paycheck even though it may be a subsidized paycheck. But that's going to take a little, you know, few weeks to set up. Okay, and so then today, what is happening? What's the Prime Minister going to be doing? Well, t- today the big thing is a, a, a First Minister's meeting. So Premier Horgan's going to be on the line with other Premiers, with the Prime Minister. They're going to talk, I guess, more about coordination. Uh, that's the Prime Minister's sort of uh, road to hoe. 
the finance minister, Bill Morneau, he is going to appear before the House of Commons Finance Committee, and you probably heard we're doing it virtually now. It's a yes. teleconference. It's a webcast uh, that these MPs are meeting. He's going to want, probably going to be president. Just what you mentioned is, you know, can you speed it up at all? Because uh, business owners are, are frantic about uh, trying to stay in business for three to six weeks to get this wage subsidy. So that's what's sort of on the docket today. And to be honest, one of the other things, too, is uh, not so much in B.C., where B.C. has been very transparent, I think, with the data on, on public yeah. health data. Federal government a little less so, and I think in order for people to understand the situation and for the public to be on board with all these measures, I think there's some pressure on the federal government to be a little more transparent with uh, some of the information, some of the planning that they, they're doing right now. And clearly, David, from the numbers from what I've been watching, there is a growing concern in Ontario and Quebec here because those numbers seem to be getting bigger and bigger every day. Right. And again, it's the, the, you know, we can argue whether you're really concerned about the number of new cases, because presumably if you test more, you get more cases. Right. It's really about some of the other numbers, number of hospitalizations, number of cases in nursing homes. In Ontario, for example, it's very difficult to get the number of hospitalizations on a daily basis, whereas other jurisdictions, it's a little more clear. You know, I, I don't know that it's a situation where somebody or a public health agency is willfully trying to hide this. I think it's a system of uh, a function of a lot of public health authorities just didn't have the systems in place to do this kind of accounting and transparency. And, of course, it's uh, you know in a, a, in a crisis for them right now, and they're being asked to do many things. But we do need those numbers. When I say we, I think the public, uh, journalists, uh, would like to have these numbers so we can get a sense that things are working. We yeah. need to know where resources ought to be applied, and we need to be able to see that politicians are essentially applying resources correctly where they're needed. More information is always better. David, thank yep. you. Thanks, Emmy. Cheers. You too. That's David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. So Parliament is on its way to being recalled to get this wage subsidy package passed. Uh, the Prime Minister having a conference call with the Premiers today. We'll have more information on that. been um, looking at our current security program and decided to go the route of an overnight mobile security during the hours of 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. to try and thwart that uh, suspicious activity. That's the executive director of the Robson Street Business Improvement Association, Terry Smith. Now, she was speaking to us earlier in the week, talking about the kind of measures that retail outlet stores and businesses in the downtown area along Robson Street have had to take to protect their business, essentially. They've boarded up a lot of those windows. And as you heard her say, they have increased their private security. So businesses are definitely worried, right? No doubt about that. The one thing I have seen is that more and more businesses Businesses, whether they are open or closed, are employing private security, whether it's the lineup at Shoppers Drug Mart, which had three private security members just to keep kind of everybody moving in the right uh, area and keeping that social distancing, or whether it's to patrol a business that has been closed. That's what you're seeing out there. So we wanted to know, is this one area that is seeing some kind of employment growth? We're joined now by Julie Powers with the BC Division of Commissioners for more on this. Julie, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Is this a busy time for your industry? Absolutely, it sure is. Um, as you, I'm sure you can imagine, we've seen um, a lot of sectors uh, having increased demand, uh, but in other sectors, we've actually seen a reduction uh, in some of that, that those demands. And so um, we have been uh, feverishly balancing those, those two changes uh, to our business. And we're actually seeing a lot of new business um, offerings coming through. Um, for example, temperature screening um, to help manage that as those access points um, with enhanced protocol. So are you having to hire people for this then? 
Absolutely. Um, we have a lot of existing uh, employees that have been displaced due to shortages of work and site closures. Um, and with the new business that's coming in, we're, we're doing um, every, we're having every effort to offer the, that new work to those employees that are being displaced. Um, but we are also seeing a lot of employees that are simply not wanting to come to work either because they're self-isolating, um, following the guidelines because they've returned from travel or have been in contact with those that are at risk. Um, but there is a fear out there and there are still uh, quite a lot of employees that are simply um, electing not to come in. So we're, we're actively hiring. We're hiring today. We continue to hire every day. Our recruitment team has not slowed down on that front. No, Julie, that is not something you hear uh, these days at all, is it? No, no, not at all. Um, uh, we had expected that this would likely be uh, the case for us and that we would have uh, more business and um, uh, a need for more staff and our recruitment team have, have kept kept pace with that um, but we've certainly had to take some serious precautions to ensure that that entire onboarding and interview process is, is handled safely um, and uh, is ensuring that uh, we're deploying new resources in the best possible way without jeopardizing anybody's safety throughout. How do you even handle training at this point because the jobs are all quite unique I know a lot of them have to do with making sure people maintain that physical distancing and follow those rules how do you put somebody through all the training? Absolutely. So uh, we, with the initial onboarding training, we've uh, just pared down the group size um, to essentially individual, uh, keeping that social distance. And then uh, through our day-to-day activities, we um, obviously are managing um, with using such things as online modules and trainings. Um, We're using a lot of um, uh, Skype and Zoom-type interfaces to connect with our people uh, remotely and provide those briefings and that training. Um, and uh, just on site, we've we've just had to um, essentially adapt to the, the recommendations of social distancing right. and make it work. So it's not just security services, I take it. Then, as you say, it also sounds like monitoring services too for businesses that are still open. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, we have our core security services, which is you know to just provide protection to, to assets. Um, but under this changing time, there's a, there's definitely a need um, to support our federal agencies and their activities um, throughout the community. And so some of that um, is again just enhanced uh, static guarding. But in other areas, um, and also with our private clients, we've we've um, delivered new services, uh, which essentially is is uh, temperature screening and basically a, uh, a screening um, protocol for anybody coming to their facility to uh, assure uh, the facility and ourselves that uh, the people entering are safe to enter and for uh, all intents and purposes, um, you know, have, uh, will be turned away if they're, if they're presenting with any sort of symptoms. Right. So then, Julie, where can people get a hold of you if they think, okay, I need a job right now, maybe I can do this? Absolutely. Um, just head to our website. Uh, there's a quick icon to click on is, um, you know, available employment and so that you, you will uh, see all of the postings that we currently have available. Um, and if you're not sure which one to select, just pick the casual worker um, and our recruitment team will get in contact with you and uh, streamline you into the right job for you. All right, Julie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Julie Powers, VP of Operations with the BC Division of Commissioners. They're an organization that provides security services of all different kinds and levels uh, right across the country. And they are hiring because that is the one area of job growth out there that we have certainly witnessed. A story now that you may have come across in the last couple of days, but we wanted you to hear the details firsthand because they seem unreal. It just seems like 
who could who would do such a thing? Turns out there are people in the world who would do this. This, of course, is the young couple from Quebec who got off a plane in a small, very northern village called Old Crow. They had sold everything. They barely had any luggage. They get off in minus 30 degree temperatures. And when people said to them, what are you doing here? They said they wanted to come and live off the grid to avoid the whole COVID-19 pandemic. Seems ridiculous, right? Well, Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Chief Dana Tiziaman, who said this this couple quickly found out that they were not welcome. We are really dealing with a life-altering pandemic. Our government has been working full steam in which to base uh, fiscal strategies on top of uh, budget projections while looking at how, as a government, we are going to finance and support the most effective measures in which to quell the spread of COVID-19. So you can imagine, with only essential staff in the government, just how busy exactly we were. But luckily, we do have an emergency management officer, which we've hired, in which to do community patrols and to educate as well. And he goes to the airport every morning, and our flights have now been reduced to two a week from six. And he goes to the airport to just hand out the government protocols, but also to hand out an isolation list to be posted on people's doors about, you know, how long they've isolated, when it began, if there's any underlying medical conditions in the house. So this is handed off to each person coming off of the plane. And he had noticed a couple walking off the plane and um, they were obviously not residents. They, he had never seen them before. And this gentleman and his girlfriend had walked off the plane in sweatpants, a jacket and a hat with no gloves, not any real luggage to speak of. And so he approached them and inquired about uh, where it was they were staying and what their intentions were in the community, to which uh, they didn't really have much of an answer. So he had called them up right away, which was my first point of contact with these individuals. And I mean, in the middle of the chaos that COVID presents all of us, whether, you know, governments or individuals, I was taken a bit back and had to rest on my heels a little bit until my mind caught up with, you know, that this, this was really happening. This was something we just were not expecting. Um, I followed up with them just a couple hours later, and, and that's where we really got to have a bit more of a conversation that's when he had let me know that their intentions were that they had come to our community to stay. They had, in his words, sold all of their belongings in Quebec and drove across the country and grabbed the first plane they could to our community. And, I mean, you could hear the fear in his voice. He was saying that tanks are going to be rolling down the streets in Quebec and with the spreading of the virus they have figured that our community was the safest place in Canada for them to weather the COVID-19 storm, as if our community was some kind of life raft for uh, the rest of the country. I mean, he had told me at one point, because I really asked him, I mean, how did you pick us out of everything? To which he informed me that he found us in a dream. And as a government official, I mean, that's a dream is not a passport. It is not you know, an alleviation from orders from the chief medical officer. It's not a golden ticket to just get you where you want to go. And their dream could have been our nightmare. To tell you the truth, you know, romanticization in the North will get you killed. 
the land does not care if you're a raven or a moose or a human being. All of your lessons are the same. It is dangerous out on the land, and it takes years to learn how to navigate it properly. The same thing with our community. We are not a regular run-of-the-mill community. We are interlocked and have been for generations. We are also in the midst of of major uh, change as we make a transition from a very traditional life that was not that long ago. I mean, these people strolled into a situation that they truly did not understand. And uh, I guess from the outside, they looked at it as if we're some kind of postcard, when really it's far from that. It's about as real as it gets up here in the north. This is unreal. I mean, these people must be absolutely out of their minds. Don't they realize that by traveling up to your community, they're putting you at risk. They could be bringing this virus to your community. Well, exactly that. And uh, as a self-governing First Nation, and as a modern treaty holder, one of 27 in Canada, we were actually doing our first reading on just this last Friday of legislation when enacted will draw emergency powers and no longer will anyone be able to step foot on our traditional territory without written permission of the government. And this was also the same day that the Yukon Territory had invoked the Civil Emergencies Act. And this is just a couple of weeks after the Health Emergency Act. So quite literally, these people slipped right through the gates as they were closing. And they were supposed to have self-isolated in the capital city of Yukon Whitehorse for two weeks before traveling to any rural community. But uh, here they were, strolling off the plane with their intentions to escape this pandemic. But in further conversation, I I had to inform these individuals about what is actually taking place here and the reality being that they've actually endangered themselves and our community. As a remote fly-in-only community 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle within the Yukon Territory, We don't have a doctor in our community of 250 people. I mean, we have a nurse and a few RCMP officers, but we don't actually have the capacity to quell a significant outbreak of COVID-19 within the community. And with one-fifth of our population being our elders, our knowledge holders, even the loss of one elder, I mean, they're living history books. They're they're living cultural touchstones, and we cannot afford to lose one elder, and we will not endanger one community member. So, in effect, even though he had told me, you know, we don't have the virus, I mean, that's exactly what someone who had a virus would say. I just don't deal with word of mouth like that in these situations. But moreover, I mean, I had to inform um, this individual that... uh, We are experiencing a housing crisis. We've had to scale back all of the construction projects this year. Our government is running on essential staff. So once he kind of sobered up to the reality that there was no jobs available and no housing in the community, there was a bit of a silence on the other end of the phone uh, to which he broke in asking me, well, what do I do now? What did you say to him? Well, I said the only thing I I really could, which was, you know, it would have been proactive and beneficial for them to have contacted us beforehand or to have researched our community before coming here because I could have informed this individual over the phone of these circumstances. 
But that's the thing with the irrational fear. People are, are jumping before they're looking. And I think a larger lesson lies in this because as a government or a territory, a country, and down to the individual, the COVID-19 virus does not see territories, it does not see borders, it does not see caste or creed, and it eclipses all of them and leaves us sitting to a chessboard, not a game of checkers. We need to be thinking five to eight moves ahead. If there is a silver bullet in the COVID-19 situation, it actually is where you are right now by by keeping physical distancing and self-isolating because it's not the virus that moves, it's people that move. Standing apart is standing together. That story is just nuts, right? Who would just show up like that thinking they're going to escape COVID-19? So what happened to that couple? Well, Chief Dana Tizitram went on to say that the RCMP were called. The couple ended up being escorted out of town on the next flight. It's crazy stuff out there. Well, let's talk about paying rent, the relationship between tenants and landlords out there. Given that yesterday was the day that many people have their rent due, it was a stressful time. But what I think renters heard from the provincial government in particular was, uh, listen, if you can't pay, then don't pay. There is a moratorium on evictions, but you've got to work something out with your landlord. And there is, of course, that renter's rebate that they're working on getting to them. So many people have suffered financially, right? Of course, due to COVID-19, there is the moratorium on evictions. And as I said, it's welcome for renters, but landlords are still left with a lot of concern and uncertainty. There is pressure on them to make sure that they are uh, more understanding towards their tenants. But course, they also have bills to pay. And so we were contacted by a number of landlords who say, listen, we're struggling here too. Uh, So our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Bo Jarvis, who is the president of West Group and chair of UDI. First, I want to say that, you know, tenants are absolutely having struggles right now. And and we, you know, both as the president of West Group Properties with hundreds and hundreds of tenants, even in the thousands, um, we fully acknowledge that, and as the chair of UDI, I mean, we fully acknowledge that on behalf of the industry that there are tenants that have lost their jobs and they simply can't pay rent right now, and so that's a huge issue, and, and fully acknowledge that, and we're working with all of our tenants. I, I don't know where this eviction moratorium came from, really, because you know, I don't know who is evicting people right now. I can't imagine trying to attract a new tenant in this environment. So I don't really know how all this started. Well, yeah, maybe let's put a face to who a landlord is, because I think that sometimes there's this perception or narrative that a landlord is either a very, very rich person or some big corporation that's sort of faceless. Yeah, let's put a a face to some landlords. So a landlord is a big multinational organization like a REIT or a pension fund. A landlord is a privately held real estate company like we have several in Vancouver. You know the names, West Group, West Bank, Ani, Concert Properties, Boza, you know all these names. A landlord is a smaller 
family company that maybe has, you know, three, four, five, six small buildings spread throughout one of our cities in the lower mainland. And, you know, the grandfather maybe bought the first building and the next generation bought a few more. A landlord is the little Greek lady in Kitsilano who owns maybe one building and that's her livelihood. A landlord is someone who owns, um, you know, a condo as an investment property. And they, it's just, that's all they have is they, they have an investment and rather than maybe stocks, a stock portfolio, they have a condo. A landlord is, um, you know, someone who has a basement suite that helps pay their mortgage and that's the only way that they were able to afford to buy their home. So there are many faces to a landlord. Um, and unfortunately, I think the word, the term landlord, Really, you know, in the overall narrative, it goes immediately sort of to big business. And I think that that's a, a misconception. Yeah, for me, uh, landlord is my brother, who is a trades guy, and he saved up his money, and he bought an apartment in Surrey, and he has a tenant there now. Uh, and his tenant was able to pay rent for this month and, and, and had no problem doing so. Their job hadn't been affected, and we're happy to pay their, their rent this month. But, you know, we were having this conversation the other night where he said – in another situation, other renters out there, if that person has not lost their job and if they are still doing okay financially, what is to stop a tenant right now from just not paying their rent because essentially they don't have to? And we find that we find that happening. A lot of anecdotal stuff, but you know, yesterday one of our members at UDI went to collect rent at one of their buildings and there was a sign in the lobby saying the BC government as well as the BC government employers union says you don't have to pay your rent. This is a sign that was put up in the lobby of a privately owned building. We have lots and lots of notices from residential tenants saying that they cannot pay rent and we are trying to sort of understand the magnitude of the issue right now and we'll probably have a better understanding in the next couple of days, but we do get the impression and I do kind of fault the provincial government for this because, again, they, they came out like no evictions during this pandemic, this crisis. And OK, OK, sure. But where, where did that come from? Where did, and, it, and it created this sort of license. You know, we've had some calls that blatantly as, you know, you can't evict me and I'm not paying my rent. And we're sort of saying, well, listen, <laughs> you're right. We can't evict you right now, but your rent is still owing. Um, we can talk about deferring it, but that's going to be an issue too because a lot of these tenants live month to month and I don't know how we're going to be able to collect three to four to five months potentially of back rent. And the big issue here is that tenants are absolutely having some struggles, but let's talk about what rent does um, because I think this is the common misconception, right, is that, um, you know, you are at, at a different sort of uh, level of the societal hierarchy if you're a landlord you're you're wealthier you have assets or whatever the case is but bottom line is is where rent goes when we collect rent we pay wages for property maintenance people property managers we pay salaries we pay benefits we pay utilities we pay hot water bills we pay electrical bills um, and we pay a mortgage and we pay property taxes and insurance and if we were to have a conversation where we said, listen, rent isn't going to be paid, we're, we're only going to be able to give you 50% of our rent this month, how do you think it would go if I, in return as a landlord, said, well, I can only probably give you 50% of your hot water and electricity? Is that okay? 
I don't think it's going to be okay is the answer. The expectation is, is that these buildings are maintained to the standard that is considered livable. Um, and more than that, we have to, you know, we're, we're going above and beyond right now to clean and disinfect and sanitize our buildings, in particular in the common areas and things like that. And that costs more money. But if we're only getting a part of the rent, this expectation is totally imbalanced. And that's what I really want. I want the conversation to start to balance out and have people talking about the fact that landlords, whether it's a big business or the family or, you know, someone like your brother, there are these obligations that the rent goes towards. And to simply say, you know, if you're the the BC government employers union or whoever it is, to say don't pay your rent, like that's just, <laughs> you know, that could be catastrophic, right? And let's go to the worst case scenario here. Let's say that, you know, the smaller landlords can't collect rent and therefore can't pay mortgages, and I hope it doesn't come to this, but if the worst case scenario, some lenders start to foreclose, and not all lenders are just, you know, CIBC or Scotiabank. There's private lenders, there's pension funds, there's life codes that are lending, and some of these lenders can't defer principal and interest like the big chartered banks. So let's say they foreclose. Would these tenants rather have their landlord be a bank or a lender Versus, you know, again, the little old Greek lady who they speak with every month and, and shows up at the door to help them and all of this kind of stuff, right? Like we have to think about the bigger picture here and how it really works as opposed to it's only tenants that are suffering. That is Bo Jarvis. He is the president of West Group and chair of UDI. Now, they have many, many uh, rental situations, of course, through their company that they deal with. And he's saying that the landlords aren't getting enough of a stake in the conversation that's going on right now about people not being able to pay rent. He's saying, yeah, that's true. But he's saying, listen, what are landlords supposed to do? They have financial obligations as well. So continuing our conversation now with Bo Jarvis, who's the president of West Group, we asked him, how does he feel? feel about that $500 rent subsidy. And remember, tenants have to apply for the subsidy, which then goes to landlords. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I I commend the government for doing something, right? I mean, that's great. I also commend the government for having it go to the landlord, because that's where it should go. That's number one. Number two is, while it is $500, that's pretty small in the grand scheme of what our costs are and things like that. What we really need is property tax relief. We need all these reliefs in the form of utilities, property taxes, deferrals, things like that. Those are the big ticket items on the expense side of operating buildings. But, you know, I just don't understand how we are supposed to compel a tenant to go and apply for this subsidy that we are ultimately going to get, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really compute. The only recourse we have as a landlord on the residential side if for non-payment of rent is eviction or the threat of eviction. We no longer have that. So we have no leverage when we're having this conversation with a tenant to you know, force them to make that application on our behalf. And certainly there's going to, there's lots of, you know, we have lots of great relationships with our tenants, face-to-face relationships, and I gather that we'll probably be able to get some of them to apply for this on our behalf, but I also know that there's a lot who won't. And I just find it, I just don't understand how the government, and I know they're working in real time, and I have to say that, right, like they're just, everybody's just sort of 
reacting and making policy on the fly and things like that. I just I wish that the government would reach out to sort of the landlords and and not just the the ministerial aides and things like that, but the decision makers and say let's have a conversation about this. Let's just let's put everything on the table and what's the best way to do all of this. And you know and we might be able to work out some scenarios that are going to be beneficial both to tenants and landlords. So I don't know how that subsidy is really going to work. And if I was to forecast or predict, I suspect that it may get changed because I think it may fail. That is Bo Jarvis, president of West Group. They have lots of tenants that they deal with, lots of rental units. And he is not happy with the way things are going. He feels that renters are getting support, right? Moratorium on evictions, that rental subsidy. But he feels that landlords are not getting enough support here. And he wishes the government would pay more attention to that. I have a feeling that you're going to have something to say about that. So why don't you call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. And you can email me, simi at cknw.com. Now, what did you think about what he had to say? Where he said it's really that landlords need more help. He's saying they need property tax relief. They need more deferral of utilities, things like that, that will actually make a difference in the landlord's pocket. He said because the government has given away the one thing that they have to control, and that is the threat of eviction in order to get payment. I know renters right away would be like, how are we supposed to pay when we don't have our jobs, right? So landlords and tenants finding themselves in a tough situation what is the solution here? Now, email me, simi at cknw.com, and let us know what you think about this. But it's certainly interesting to hear that different perspective. For people who are out of work or have had their wages reduced due to COVID-19, BC Hydro will be offering a three-month credit on your power bill so you can focus on the things that matter to you most. All right, that was Premier John Horgan yesterday at a press conference talking about BC Hydro rate relief, which I know many of you have been asking about, you've been emailing. So let's get some details on how this works. How do you get this credit then? Uh, Joining us now, Bruce Ralston, Provincial Energy Minister, Minister Responsible for BC Hydro and MLA for Surrey Wally. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. No, it's great to be on, Simi. So who qualifies for this credit? Uh, well, anyone who's unemployed, and the proof of that will be uh, if you have an EI application, but it's a little bit broader than that as well. It'll be anyone who's quarantined, or uh, including the self-employed, anyone who's taking care of a family member who's sick, or parents with children who have require care, children who have require care or supervision because uh, school or daycare is closed, and, and even if they don't qualify for EI, so it's. Uh, we're working to have that uh, up and running uh, by the end of uh, next week, uh, and uh, people will be able to apply online and uh, and get uh, get the credit uh, as fast as we can get it out. Could the the proof of EI though that might be tricky as the federal government found out because an awful lot of people need help who are self employed and might not necessarily qualify for EI. Uh, well, the, as, as I said, it will be a little bit broader than the strict uh, EI criterion, although even the new expanded one that the federal government has put into place. So but we're optimistic that we'll be able to help uh, a wide range of uh, BC Hydro residential customers. Yeah, let's talk about the commercial customers here as well. What about businesses who have been forced to close? Um, any business that's been forced to close will get a, 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 a credit, will have their, their 
their power bills forgiven, pardon me, for three months starting this month. So, and that will not be, uh, it will not be obliged to repay that. Um, so that'll be immediate relief. It's easy hydro definition of small business, which is about uh, 190,000 uh, customers. Uh, and they will be able to, uh, through an application process as well, which will take a little bit longer to get going, another week or so, uh, they will be able to uh, uh, get that relief. And when it comes to, we've been talking about landlords and tenants and rent and, and all of that as well. What about landlords who have tenants who are not necessarily paying their rent right now? Will they also get a break on these? Uh, well, the, there, there is a program that Minister uh, Selena Robinson has put into effect, the uh, $500 credit a month that will be paid to landlords. So someone was asking me yesterday about the specific application of sometimes people have the power bill tacked on to their rent, mm-hmm. and they pay that through the landlord. Um, we're working on a mechanism for uh, how that might be handled. It's a little bit uh, trickier because it's uh, an indirect billing. Okay, and so have you ever, has BC Hydro ever gone to these kind of lengths before? Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of it. I, 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 there is some experience with uh, shutdown and relief to business in the fire seasons that have taken place uh, over the last several summers. Uh, and there's that experience that the Hydro is drawing upon to, to give uh, relief to business. Have you estimated how many people then on the residential side of things may qualify for this credit? I, the, I mean, it's it's difficult to estimate, but uh, they're planning on the basis of 100,000 people uh, making an application. But we obviously it will be monitored as we go along, and uh, the program will be adjusted or refined or improved uh, as we gain experience in running the program. And there's also a, a cut in the rate, right, right across the board? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's something that was in the works uh, completely separate. BC Hydro made what they call a rate application to the BC Utilities Commission. It's an independent uh, commission. That started process started last year, and it comes into effect uh, April 1st, just uh, yesterday. Uh, and that is a 1% in- decrease in the bills across the board for everyone. It's been a long time since that happened, but that's part of the commitment that the Premier made to... Uh, focus on affordability for British Columbians. So we're pleased that uh, we're able to institute that. But that was in the works completely unrelated to uh, COVID. So how long now will it take to get this up and running? You said soon, but what can people expect? Uh, well, the, uh, for the residential customers, uh, they're telling me by the, they want to have it up and running by the end of next week. And small business customers will be able to start to apply the week of April 14th, so about two weeks from now. Okay, and all this information, I assume, is on the BC Hydro website? It is, yeah. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Great, thanks very much, Simi. Appreciate that. Bruce Ralston is the Minister Responsible for BC Hydro and DPMLA for Surrey Wally, talking about, uh, in, in more detail, the announcement made yesterday by the provincial government for BC Hydro rate relief. So for business customers, yes, uh, you'll have your power bills forgiven for three months. For qualifying residential customers, a, a credit as well. So rates forgiven essentially for three months. They'll get that up and running uh, in the next couple of weeks, they said, so you can apply 
life for. And we know that many companies, many small businesses out there, places that you rely on, are struggling right now. Take, for instance, this next story we're going to let you know about. It's the Ridge Meadows Hospice Society. They have been forced to close the doors of their Maple Ridge thrift store in order to protect the seniors, the volunteers who help run this operation. Now, that is a major blow to their bottom line. And this is a thrift store that went on to like raise money to support the Hospice Society, which supported the local hospital. Lindsay Willis is the executive director of the Ridge Meadows Hospice and joins me now for more on this. Lindsay, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you. Can you give me an idea of the kind of work that the hospice was doing before all this happened? Oh, for sure. So as a hospice society, we provide supports and programs to our community for those who are going through a life-limiting illness, through end of life. And then the majority of our work currently is our grief support program. So providing grief support on a one-to-one basis through our groups to folks after their losses. So that's what we were happily doing and reaching an all-time high when this all happened. And when did you realize that it was no longer feasible to keep the doors open? Uh, So about the 13th, we were scheduled to have our fundraiser, a big pub night. By the 16th, 17th, it just... You just knew it just didn't feel safe to keep the doors open. Um, 70% of our volunteers in our thrift store are over 75. We have a small staff, but 50 volunteers who dedicate their time in that store, and it just it was not safe to keep those doors open. So is that primarily the reason then why the doors closed is because you can't risk any of these seniors getting COVID-19? Well, number one, we're following, obviously, the provincial mandates and guidelines presented there to businesses in town. But, of course, volunteers are the heart of every hospice society. And, number one, our staff and our volunteers' health and safety was priority. We could have looked at ways of, you know, as an essential business. It's not essential, the thrift store, to, let's say, an essential business list. But as an essential business to keep us afloat, it is essential. And it's... It, we'd look at ways possibly of reopening with social distancing and such, but it's just, it's, yeah, doesn't yeah. make sense. So where are you at then right now? How long can you essentially stay afloat? Hmm. Well, our thrift store, every um, hospice society's models are different, but for us, that store does provide 60% of our operational budget. Um, we rely heavily on our store we and our fundraising events. So we've we've done the projections. We've made significant cuts, laid off our unfortunately, our staff at the store. Um, Honestly, we could probably sustain about three more months we're looking at, but that's with significant cuts probably to our program staff as well here in the office. Right. That must be so hard because this is the time really when probably your services are needed the most. You're right. Um, All of us, what we're feeling right now and watching our world and our communities the grief piece is significant. We're watching families who can't access funerals, who can't gather. Um, gathering is so significant when somebody is dying, being present with each other, leaving that hospice, yeah. and then being with each other at home. So we are really concerned right now on the impact this is going to have on our community, our province, in the in the collecting people at the other end as they're grieving and supporting them through that. Is there anything that you thought, is it just... This is this the status quo. Are there grants available? Is there any way you've thought about maybe ramping things up a little bit? 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. So definitely making a shift um, desperately daily as things change and watching what's coming down from the federal government provincially. Um, We are making a big shift right now to grant writing, reaching out to other corporations, individuals. It's hard right now. Um, Let's just be honest ethically to ask for donations. It's but we are looking at that where we're going to have to really reach out to our community to, yeah. What about your volunteers too? You said seventy percent of them are seniors. That must mean that they're also probably feeling pretty isolated right now. They sure are, especially at our store. That thrift store had become and is. I'm not going to say had is an incredible community hub in Maple Ridge. It it's right downtown core. It's accessible to our seniors by our senior center and had become a very uh, lively, active place. We always liken it to a a Cheers pub where folks could come and feel connected. So we're trying to stay connected via email and phone calls right now with our team. And Yeah, but it's a significant loss for them, that value of giving back to their community and feeling connected. Well, let's see what we can do. Lindsay, thanks so much for your time. And listen, Thank you good luck. so much, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Lindsay Willis, Executive Director of the Ridge Meadows Hospice Society. There are some avenues open to places like the Ridge Meadows Hospice Society. Joining us now is Tamara Vrooman, the CEO of Van City Credit Union. Tamara, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much, Simi. Now tell me a bit about this Community Response Fund. Yeah, sure. The Community Response Fund is something that is uh, co-created with the Vancouver Foundation, uh, Van City, and uh, the United Way. Uh, we've raised about uh, $3 million uh, so far, and the idea is that it is an emergency fund for community organizations right across the province who are in difficulty because of uh, COVID-19. So we've got an expedited application process. We have uh, staff that are reviewing applications in a very, very uh timely manner. We're usually getting back to people within 24 hours and we're focusing particularly on organizations that help uh, vulnerable people and seniors uh, during this critical time. Oh, hey, can we put you in touch with the Ridge Meadows Hospice Society that we just spoke to on the show because they could use some help? Yeah, absolutely. It's organizations exactly like uh, like the Hospice Society that are reaching out to us uh, along with others, uh, street shelters for youth, food banks right across the spectrum to make sure that we can get timely assistance to them in this uh, really important time. Yeah. Okay. So where do they need to go? Is there a website they need to go to a number yeah, they call? They can, yeah, absolutely. They can, uh, they can find us on the vancity.com uh, website or the Vancouver foundation website, it's the community response fund. Okay. We will let the Ridge Meadows hospice society know about that. Uh, now, Thank you. Tamara, this is also a really tough time. I know for banks as well for credit unions, you must be hearing from customers who need help too. What, what is the credit union doing for them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, because we are a cooperative uh, and we are a credit union, you know, we are all about members helping members. And so we have had a tremendous uh, outreach to our community and also a number of members who have reached uh, out to us. To date, we've had over 2,000 members reach out to us asking for help with mortgage payments, with uh, business account payments, with credit card debt. Uh, able asking us to be able to bridge uh, their finances at this really difficult time. And so we're working with them in a one-on-one basis. We take a lot of time and care to make sure that we get it right for them. We've got extra staff on phone lines, dedicated numbers for seniors and small business so they can make sure that they uh, they can contact us because I know this is a very, very anxious time for yeah, a lot of people. It really is. So then it's a case-by-case basis. You're just helping people out as they phone and say, listen, I've lost my job. I need some help with blank. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting in this day and age, we tend to think that everything is automated. 
you know, yeah. we, we exchange things in finance uh, through uh, through digital. We have artificial intelligence that helps us, automatic credit approvals and things like that. But at times like this, it really is the human touch that's important. Every case is different. And so in about 15 or 20 minutes, our staff are really knowledgeable about uh, being able to put our members' mind at ease get them the support they need, bridge this critical time mm-hmm. and set them up so they don't have to worry about finances with everything else that's going on. Have you had to do some more training in that regard? Because obviously they're probably dealing with phone calls that they never used to get. Well, it's interesting, right? Since uh, we actually had a program that we operated in the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 that looked very similar to this. Of course, it wasn't nearly at this scale. Uh, so we did have the policies already. We did have... Uh, folks who knew how to do it. So we stood those up immediately as soon as this crisis hit. And then, of course, we've been providing even more training to more staff who were able to have working from home and in remote locations to protect their health and well-being uh, so we can serve more members in this way. So, Tamara, then at this point, what do you want people to know? Well, I want them to know that with all of the uh, all of the anxiety and difficulty and challenge uh, that is in our uh, daily lives, uh, that we're here for them and that members can contact us uh, at any time. We ask, of course, that they don't come into the branch unless they absolutely have to. We are working to protect the, their health and safety as well as the safety of our staff and adhering to the uh, public health uh, guidelines. But uh, other than that, we're open and available as an essential service to support them. And so whether they're a not-for-profit, a small business, an individual, a student, uh, we really want to hear from them because um, chances are we can help. You know, of those applications that we've been having, over 97% have been approved. So we really think that um, that this is uh, a way that we can contribute to alleviate people's anxiety at this uh, critical time. All right, we'll send a few your way. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks very much.